The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, delighted that we're joined for the Culture Club today by somebody who we've always spoken to for medical reasons in the past. Uh, One of the country's best-known doctors, former master of the National Maternity Hospital, Dr Rona Mahoney, thank you very much for taking the time to do something very different today doing the Culture Club. It certainly is. And Matt, thanks so much for having me in. So I am well and truly out of my comfort zone. But look, here we go. It did strike me that, given the nature of your work and the Mm. fact that you're often on call to go and deliver babies... There must be countless times where you've had to leave the cinema or leave concerts or leave the theatre or whatever, that something you might be engrossed in and you've just had to leave. Absolutely. So getting to the end of things or even just even getting to things, you know, so very often you'll have a plan to go to the theatre and then obviously something will kick off at 5pm. So I am like the worst date ever. Um, I'm always letting people down. So most of my friends know it well by now and they've been remarkably kind to be still be my friends. <laughs> I look around at the ones I have and I go, goodness, um, marks for tenacity, you know, but yeah. Is that one of the reasons why we're going to start with books that you mm. love reading so much that at mm. least you can have a little bit more command over the time that you can dedicate to reading? Yeah, but also I just grew up. My mother was a really kind of avaricious reader. You know, you could hardly keep her in books per day. And um, Rohini Library will attest to that. So we grew up in a house that was always reading and there was nothing nicer. I just loved a good book when I was growing up and uh, especially reading in bed, you know, and sometimes you know, they come up at three in the morning and I'd be under the covers with the torch trying to get that last chapter read and then you know rushing home to pick up the book again so when I would get very engrossed in a book I would just love it um, and could hardly put it down I'd be rushing home from school to find out what happens next so and I still love reading the problem now is actually I get too tired sometimes I don't read half enough and there's this big growing pile of books beside my bed that I really want to get to but and what sort of things do you like reading is it fiction or non-fiction or what Real combination. I'll read anything actually. Um, so not married to any one genre. Um, love biographies because always fascinating, and you tend to learn. I love history as well, so that kind of marries those two things. Um, but equally fiction. But again, kind of Sebastian Fox, Hemingway. So you're always getting some reflection on times past. So there's a little learning in it as well. But anything that's beautifully written, um, I love. Okay. And yet you got into medicine despite sheer mm. love of books. I nearly studied history. I mean, I tell the story all the time, um, which would have been a more literary pathway. But uh, as it happened, um, I applied to Cambridge and they didn't love my essays, which were all based on <laughs> you know, the um, rising and all kinds of Irish nationalist uh, literature. So it was a very stiff interview. So I studied medicine. OK. A big difference, but obviously a great career choice to make. Yeah, I see the the list of things that you love, particularly uh, you love the likes of Evelyn Waugh. Mm-hmm. I just remember I got introduced to Evan Wall growing up with Brideshead Revisited um, I think it was 1981 and there was this serial of Brideshead um, so you had Jeremy Irons playing Charles Ryder and Anthony Andrews was Sebastian Flight and it was just absolutely mesmerising um, and I've read the book since and actually you have to read the book more than the series obviously but it's such a sad book it's such a cold book um, it's such a story of unrequited love and ruined lives and difficult relationships but in the middle of it all then you have the decline I suppose of the class system in England you have the old houses coming into decline the old Catholic families um, all becoming no more and you're reading about that disintegration um, and it starts so beautifully in Oxford with the boys having a laugh and they're you know um, jollying about um, and it seems the world is their oyster but bit by bit their lives become 
very disappointing. And obviously Sebastian, who is this really beautiful young boy. And there's a kind of romance between um, Charles, his friend, and Sebastian, a real real romance. Um, but Sebastian becomes an alcoholic and he rejects much of what his family is about. And he's very much a fish out of water um, and finds himself in North Africa in decline. So... It was a subject that even Waugh entertained very much, I think, was the decline of upper English class the, and the decline, of course, of Catholicism, which for even Waugh would have been an important You really topic. absorb these books, don't you? <laughs> I do really. No, 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 I really... <laughs> um, and maybe that's it, because you can live in another world for a while, why not? You know, it's like going away. Um, you open the pages and you can be somewhere else. You also have American literature, I see Hemingway mm. in particular. Mm. Love Ernest Hemingway, um, Movable Feast. You know, um, it's biographical. It's about his time in Paris when he started writing. But I was just fascinated because, of course, he knew F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, he would see James Joyce having a dinner, you know, in Paris every now and then and Zelda. Um, and that whole group had this incredible um, time in Paris. You had Sylvia Beach, who ran the incredible bookshop. And, of course, she published uh, Ulysses for Joyce. Um, but she would have known all of the writers. And I had just had this idea of what a circle to move in, you know, where they would all sit and meet each other. They were competitive. I mean, um, Hemingway and Fitzgerald didn't love each other. Um, but Hemingway, a bit more disciplined. F. Scott Fitzgerald obviously became an alcoholic and that really impacted his career. And of course, he died so young and Zelda had been so unwell. But they all had such difficult lives. And Hemingway had four wives who were all fascinating and ended up in Cuba writing in the rum. But Old Man at the Sea is probably the most beautiful book I've ever read. And for anyone who doesn't read much, it's a novella, like it's a small book to get through. But just the language itself, if you never had a story to it, the language itself is just so beautiful. And you're left at the end not quite sure, was the old man really at the sea or was he not? But it's just beautiful to read. I was told you're reading Joyce's Ulysses now. And yeah. there's a particular chapter set in the mm. National Maternity Hospital. Yeah, so this is chapter 14, Oxen of the Sun. Um, and actually I'm starting, I had not read this before really, apart from essays about it, but starting to read it now. And of course, essentially the plot is Joyce, you know, Bloom is wandering around Dublin all day because Molly, his wife, is at home making love to Blazes Boylan. Um, their little baby Rudy had died 11 years earlier and they couldn't grieve him. And so their marriage had grown apart. So Molly's having an affair to try and, you know, obliterate some of the pain. And Bloom is wandering around. So it's really sad. And then he comes to Hollis Street to visit his friend Mina Purefoy. So we don't know quite how deep the friendship is, but we don't think that Mina's baby is uh, is Bloom's. But Mina's in labour like for three days um, and eventually produces a healthy son. And actually it's quite sad because Bloom's baby is dead. Rudy had died at day age. 11 days and now he welcomes his friend's baby and Mina's baby is a beautiful baby boy who's perfect although it was a prolonged labour and of course Hollis Street became really famous for the management of prolonged labour so the act of management labour which is a management protocol practised all over the world and um, who would have thought um, so Joyce was very prescient in his writing but anyway why Mina's labouring and all the women are being midwives and doing all the work the men are all sitting around drinking their heads off you know what I mean and um, slagging <laughs> off women and they're just so rude and misogynistic it's quite incredible and of course the men are doing nothing and the whole play of language of course Joyce writes in each so the 32 parodies so each parody is a different language so whether it's pre-Latinate English whether it's Anglo-Saxon whether it's Romantic era whether it's Milton Dick. Dickens, uh, it's all this wordplay, it's super, super clever. But of course, that's all they do is play around with words. Women actually do the work and have the baby. And even, <laughs> yeah. even when the book is published, it was Sylvia Beach who published because you couldn't get it published by anyone else. It was actually a woman who gave birth to Joyce's book. You ha we have one clip that we're going to play from what you do call your favourite book, although you've mentioned so many that clearly you love, The Little Prince. Oh. 
Yeah. Okay. So some people are going to say, oh my God, that's nauseating. That's so sickly. It's a really beautiful, beautiful book. But you have to read about Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who is the author before you appreciate it, because it's actually all about him. Um, and the little prince, so basically um, this pilot crashes in the desert and he's got water for eight days. He's in big trouble. He's a thousand miles from anywhere. He's trying to fix his engine and lo and behold, out of nowhere arrives this mysterious little prince with blonde curls, you know, beautifully dressed, who keeps asking him questions. Um, and of course, the little prince will keep asking questions. But if you ask him a question, he'll never answer it. But he wants the pilot to draw a sheep. And, and this brings us back to when the pilot was a child. He once saw this boa constrictor eating this ferocious animal and the state in his head. So he had a drawing of an elephant that had been swallowed by a boa constrictor. And every time he showed it to a grown-up, they thought this was a hat. <laughs> and he would say, no, 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 this is an elephant in a boa constrictor. And then he drew the elephant actually in the boa constrictor. And the adults say, you know, I think you should really study arithmetic or geography um, or history. Um, this is really not going to get you anywhere. And so there's a big attack um, on grown-ups in the beginning of it and the fact they don't understand anything. And if they ask you questions, they'll ask you, like, how old are you? And they'll ask you about numbers. Or if they see a beautiful house with geraniums, they won't find it beautiful until they find out how much it's worth. So this probably comes from the fact his own father died when he was four. He was one of five children and his mother was very indulgent. She really fiercely loved them, but they ran riot and he was always writing. And at three in the morning, he'd wake them all up to read his latest poem and they would love this. But his aunts and uncles felt that they were all terribly unruly. He was sort of minor nobility. They grew up between two shadows and uncles and aunts very involved in their childhood, but they disapproved terribly of these unruly children. So I think that's why he had the... Um, thing for grown-ups. Let's hear an extract read by Peter Ustinov. When at last I was able to speak, I said to him, but uh, what are you doing here? And in answer he repeated very slowly, as if he were speaking of a matter of great consequence, if you please draw me a sheep. When a mystery is too overpowering, one dare not disobey. Absurd as it might seem to me, a thousand miles from any human habitation and in danger of death, I took out of my pocket a sheet of paper and my fountain pen. But then I remembered how my studies had been concentrated on geography, history, arithmetic and grammar, and I told the little chap, a little crossly too, that I did not know how to draw. He answered me, that doesn't matter. Draw me a sheet. But I had never drawn a sheep, so I drew for him one of the two pictures I had drawn so often. It was that of the boa constrictor from the outside, and I was astounded to hear the little fellow greet it with, No, 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 I do not want an elephant inside a boa constrictor. A boa constrictor is a very dangerous creature, and an elephant is very cumbersome. Where I live, everything is very small. What I need is a sheep. I'll draw me a sheep. Brilliant, you read by the late Peter Eustonoff. You brought the book with you. Yeah. It's the one that, have you read that to your children when they were small? Um, absolutely did. I said read it. It's actually quite an adult book too. Um, the book goes on and the little prince takes the pilot in between fixing his plane on a tour of all the planets. And there's seven planets, including Earth. And six of the planets, so one has um, a businessman who's cataloguing stars because no one's thought they could own the stars. Once you catalog them, then he feels he owns them. But of course, he never looks or appreciates them. Then there's a drunkard who's drinking... 
um, to forget. And what's he trying to forget? He's ashamed. And then he goes into a cycle of drinking. Then you have a geographer who sits at his desk the whole time and never goes out to experience the land that he's in. But he waits for reports to come back. There's the king who has no subjects and he can only make reasonable rules. In other words, rules that will be kind of obeyed anyway. So he has no great um, courage. And then the vain man who wants to be applauded the whole time for no particular reason. So there is a moral, of course, and he's exposing again um, the frailties of people um, and of adulthood. Um, and of course, the prince himself has left behind his planet and his rose. So on his planet, there is a rose that had grown and she was very delicate but capricious, which represents his wife. So it's very allegorical. Um, book um, and then on the prince's own planet he had spent his whole time he had two volcanoes um, which were two were active and then one was dormant and he has to rake them every day so that they don't get um, put his um, planet into trouble and also he had this special plant on his planet called baobabs and you have to pull them up the whole time or his planet will get destroyed and that represents probably Nazi um, invasion of France and he was quite anti-Vichy France um, but he didn't much love de Gaulle either so he was caught between the two of them um, and ultimately he came to fight um, in 1943 and he really shouldn't have he'd had a few plane accidents at this time he was in his early 40s he was an alcoholic he was really unwell but literally bundled into a plane and was on a reconnaissance mission from uh, Corsica and he went missing and obviously was killed but the prince is guilty by leaving behind his little rose and there's a lovely scene also where the little prince meets where the pilot meets a fox, a desert fox and the fox is saying, you know what, um, there are thousands of foxes like me but once you get to know me then you have tamed me and now our relationship is different, we are very special. So the rose, because the prince has seen this big field of roses and thought oh my god my rose wasn't special it's one of hundreds but of course the point being that once we carve out our relationships then everything becomes unique and special and they're very important but the time comes for the prince to go back to his planet and he dies and there's such a sad scene he's going to be bitten by a snake and he's told the pilot that he must go the plane is fixed the pilot's going to make it and he's told him that he must go, but he's not to watch because it will really upset him. But it's just his body dying, but that he will be going back. And this is probably Antoine's brother who died when he was, his little brother who died when he was around nine and said apparently on his deathbed, don't worry about me, it's just my body. I tell you, Dr. Ronamani, if you ever decide to give up medicine, there's a career for you in book <laughs> reviewing, <laughs> given the way that you're actually able to absorb and then tell what is actually in the stories. I have lots of other things beyond books. And I know you had also listed Maeve Finchie and Agatha Christie and others, but I want to talk to you about your other uh, cultural influences. With Dr. Rona Mandy of the Culture Club here on The Last Word on Today FM. Other things than books, which is clearly your passion. But you've watched a lot of television, I see from this. Do you remember an awful lot of the <laughs> things you watched growing up as well? Tell us about some of these things. The, the thing that people don't appreciate, my children don't appreciate, was the fact I was watching television before you had videos and before you had Netflix and before you could choose what to watch. So, of course, the ritual was what's on, we had BBC, we were quite lucky. So what's on RG and what's on BBC? So your evening would be planned around what was on telly. So the first thing was my father would watch all the current affairs programmes. You had to work around that and then snooker, football, <laughs> darts, <laughs> everything else, rugby, whatever. So there was a kind of a limited and then there was, I had to know the brother and sister. So there was five of us. But as a family, the things we loved were, I suppose, all the BBC comedies, you know, like Faulty Tower and Are You Being Served, Yes Minister. 
uh, not the nine o'clock news. Monty Python was sort of off the wall, really zany stuff. But they were great fun. Um, loved watching Morse. That was always a favourite. Actually, my kids love Morse now. We've gone on to graduate to Lewis and to Endeavour. So Morse is the very erudite. We have a clip from that. John Thaw playing Morse, making an arrest. We're here to arrest you, sir, for the murder of John Mitchell. I'm a ridiculous man. You don't have to say anything unless you wish to do so, but anything you say may be given in evidence. Alone, Dawson. Please. No, Patrick. It's all right. Get out! Take it with you! I don't think so. You see, in a few days, we cleared up a crime that an entire police force couldn't solve 18 years ago. I've said you're a good detective, Morse. What more do you want? It wasn't detection. It was the diary. You knew it was genuine. You found that out 13 years ago. So you set us up and watched us go, second time around, straight to John Mitchell. You held back about the Mitchell seeing Redpath look for his knife, but you knew we'd find out about that sooner or later. The diary was dismissed by everyone as a fake host. Yes. Dismissed by Charlie Hillian, by Lewis, and me. But not you. Because we lacked your great incentive, didn't we? To find the man that killed your daughter. What are you saying? Daughter? Patrick, what is he saying? Morse. Oh. So that is classic Morse. So Morse was not always right. That was the first thing. And very often um, he would be investigating and he would initially be on the wrong trail. And it was always something incredibly clever that put him back on the trail, something that he would have learned in Oxford with the classics. So it would be either, you know, an ancient Greek alphabet or um, an opera song because he loved opera or something that would put him on the right trail. And then he would think so much outside the box. So he was unorthodox. And there was always the hint of him that he should have been in charge of the police force but didn't get on well with the superiors. So he stayed as a detective. Um, he was a bit mean too. I mean, Lewis had to buy all the pints the whole time. He loved to pint, <laughs> but Lewis paid for it all. And then he had the beautiful car, the you know, and um, and always sitting at home in the evening, um, reading and listening to beautiful opera. Of course, John thought very different to the role he had done previously in The Professionals, which would have oh, been completely Bodie and utterly and, different. Uh, yeah, yeah. And oh, then, that takes me back. Then you have... Modern day, you, there are two particular ones you picked out that we're not going to play because they're foreign language subtitled, but they are exceptionally popular. Call My Agent and Borgen. Why mm, have you picked those mm. out? I think Borgen, um, because of just the difficulties she encountered. You know, she this is, is the Danish Prime Minister. The Danish Prime Minister and the whole interplay between the media and the politicians and the whole fragility of her political career. And then at home she has this very cold, difficult husband and you're all the time wondering, well, who's looking after her? And she's so lovely. And even her friends at times, she's wondering, are they betraying her? Are they not? And everything is just so unnecessarily difficult. And we feel that she is a good person trying to do the right thing but the natural compromises of um, the politics um, and that whole media interplay just make life really impossible and I think there's lots of parallels to draw in modern life um, and I'm sure every politician watching Morgan goes I know exactly how she feels but you sort of love her 
And I loved her, of course, because she's a female in a leadership role. And that does play into some of the difficulties she has. There's no doubt about it. Um, but she keeps going and she's very courageous and she's very strong and yet very gentle. And then the personal difficulties, you know, with her daughter. So it's all there. She really has a bit of a yeah. tough life. It's on either Netflix or Amazon Prime because I'm actually in season three myself, mm. having watched the first two seasons mm. quite a while back. I call my agent the uh, <laughs> French... Uh, which is brilliant. I just loved it so much. Um, I just love the characters in it. I love the clothes. I love Paris. Um, I love the whole context, the humour. Um, and it was just wonderful cast. And just the chemistry in that cast was just fantastic. So I very much enjoyed that. And I will probably watch it again at some point. It's one of those things in deep winter you'll put on and enjoy. The Durells, though, is another favourite mm. you've picked up. Why so? Um, again, I read the books growing up, I suppose. So um, I just think they're so beautiful. But again, it's really interesting. So Jerry, so this is a family. Um, they had been born in India. Their mum and dad had lived in India. Their father dies quite young and their mum returns to England. Um, she's quite an interesting character. She'd never quite fit in in India either. She got on wonderfully well with all the native population. Um, she was very much her own person and yet described as being very fragile at the same time. She's also an alcoholic and this is a central theme in all of the writing. But um, she comes back to England and it's just very difficult for her. Um, in the end, in desperation, she gets this wild idea, um, supposedly because it was raining too much in England, but there's much more to it, clearly. Um, and she brings the whole family to Corfu. They haven't a penny. Um, they have nowhere to go. And um, they get adopted by Spiro, who is the local helper, fixer, taxi man, who obviously adores this family and looks after them very much. Um, there is a great biography by Michael Hagg, which fills in the gaps a little bit. Um, and it's very interesting to read that because it does, Jerry, we see it from Jerry's perspective this time in Corfu, the Corfu trilogy. There's three books um, and it's all about a little boy and his dog, Roger, and they find themselves let loose um, in Corfu. There's no proper school. They have this fabulous, he has a fabulous tutor called Theodore um, who loves animals as much as he does and insects and they're it has that wonderful Victorian um, classification syndrome where they want to classify and learn about everything. But there is just this glorious little boy on this beautiful island roaming around and he collects various animals. So he has a menagerie in his house and his poor siblings, you know, often come across scorpions or dangerous snakes in the bath. Or So there's various adventures and episodes. They're just really colourful family. Lawrence was a writer also. Jerry went on to write and in fact went on to run a zoo and a, he's a conservationist. We have a clip and Keely Hawks playing Louisa Durrell and Alexis Jorgoulis as Spiral mm. in the Durrells. Spirit, have you seen Margot anywhere? No. You worry too much. You should stop that. Spirit, things don't seem to be getting back to how they were between us. No, you're tense. Well, yes, I am because I... I, I... You're alone in the house, lots of men. It's not healthy. I will have as many men in the house as I need to pay the bills, lying around in hammocks, in their underwear if they wish. I'm just saying, make it clear, you're not interested in them. I'm not interested in them. Drop in any time and see for yourself. That's television. We're running short on time, so I want to move to music and... Uh, you have a love for Phil Lynott. Why so? Growing up, um, probably again, I went to the Grove like anyone who grew up in Northside Dublin. So the Grove was 
Um, we call it the Grove Social Club now if you Google it, but it was a disco in my day on in St. Paul's College, Rohini, and it was the highlight, absolute highlight of your week. Cecil Nolan was the DJ. He gave us a phenomenal background in music. So it was a very alternative disco. It was nothing about the charts or what was in. It was Thin Lizzy, um, oh, Leonard Skinnerd, The Cure, Simple Minds. We had some U2, but also back to Santana. You had Beatles. I mean, we just had this most diverse Eric Clapton, uh, pretty much Queen, everything, Bowie, but um, always really cool. There was no disco lights. There was one red light and he literally would turn the record one by one. But um, that's where I discovered Thin Lizzy. I'm used to write on our school bags, you know, like Thin Lizzy. And initially I didn't really know what Thin Lizzy was. And then... Um, the music was just so beautiful. And actually, my kids and I love Thin Lizzy. And then the documentary recently, which is well worth watching, um, obviously, again, Phil Lynott, such a tragic loss to music and to us. He was a really sophisticated man and wonderful musician, but his music is beautiful. And yes, we actually had Scott Gorham did oh, the no Culture way. Club recently, and he was an absolutely terrific guest. Yeah. Uh, and he had some fantastic choices as well. So, and I would imagine he is playing probably because he was the longest serving guitarist with Thin Lizzy with Phil Lynott. So let's actually hear still in love with you. That's possibly my favourite Lizzie track as well that you picked. It's absolutely wonderful. You have you 2 was the best gig you mm. were at and it was one in Chicago. We have, well no, it wasn't in Chicago that you Lewis. went. We have a clip from Chicago but you oh, yeah. saw them in St. Louis. Um, no, no, you 2 I saw in Dublin. That oh, was Dublin, my first sorry. gig, sorry, 1985. So that was... Uh, first big gig I ever attended so that was U2 the homecoming and of course they were going to go on and do so much more and travel back again I've seen U2 several times but it was just magical because the first gig um, and then I think the second I suppose the other gig I recall was a time in St. Louis I was on a fellowship I spent a few weeks in America travelling around and I ended up in St. Louis for a few days and my fellow St. Louis Eisenhower's took me out one day to downtown St. Louis um, to the real local blues district um, and it was just extraordinary. I don't know anything about blues music, a little jazz, but the kind of jazz the girl from Dublin knows, not real blues and jazz. Um, and this was just extraordinary and it was a range of acts, just people jamming, people singing, but it was raw and it was absolutely, it just, you know, I was just mesmerised. Um, it was just wonderful. Um I've been lucky enough in New Orleans as well to see a bit of jazz there and some of the big clubs, but I give the top mark in my life to St. Louis. Okay. Well, one last thing to finish, a movie. 
And the movie is one that has been nominated by lots of people who've done the Culture Club here. You have nominated some like it all. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's just so funny. And I guess it's just so charming. And in some ways, nowadays, you're nearly scared to mention it in case it offends everyone because of the content, but you can't not love it. So, I mean, really, it's a film about mobsters and the Valentine Massacre and then guys dressing up as women to con people either into bed or into, you know, partying with money. So on the, you know, first reading, it's slightly disgraceful, but it is just wonderful. Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and Marilyn Monroe but the whole um, so these two guys they witness a murder by the mobster and they've got to flee and they end up joining a girls band dressed up as women and they're just about in drag but they're very clearly men um, and of course they find themselves then as confidence to the old fall in love with Sugar who's Marilyn Monroe um, and one of them becomes her confidant and Sugar's had enough of um, musicians and she's thinking to herself she needs a good honest millionaire well, as it happens, the clip that we have has Tony Curtis as Josephine and Marilyn Monroe as Sugar Cane, in which Sugar explains that she has a thing for saxophone players. Sugar, you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. Yeah, you better keep a lookout. If Beanstalk catches you again, what's the matter with you anyway? I'm not very bright, I guess. I wouldn't say that. Careless, maybe. No, just dumb. If I had any brains, it wouldn't be on this crummy train with this crummy girl's dance. Well, why'd you take this job? I used to sing with male bands, but I can't afford it anymore. Have you ever been with a male band? Who? Me? That's what I'm running away from. I worked with six different ones the last two years. Oh, Rob. Rob? I'll say. You can't trust those guys. I can't trust myself. I have this thing about saxophone players, especially tennis sax. Really? I don't know what it is. They just curdle me. All they have to do is play eight bars or come to me, my melancholy baby. And my spine turns to custard. I get goose pimply all over. And I come to him. That's so? Every time. You know, I play tennis acts. But you're a girl, thank goodness. Oh, yeah. That's why I joined this band. Safety first. Anything to get away from those bums. Yeah. You don't know what they're like. You fall for them. You really love them. You think this is going to be the biggest thing since the Graf Zeppelin. The next thing you know, they're borrowing money from you. They're spending it on other dames and betting on horses. You don't say. Then one morning you wake up, the guy's gone, the saxophone's gone. All that's left behind is a pair of old socks and a tube of toothpaste, all squeezed out. So you pull yourself together. You go on to the next job, the next saxophone player. It's the same thing all over again. You see what I mean? No wonderful. <laughs> Some like it hot. Dr. Ronamani, unfortunately, we've run out of time. We had other choices from you that unfortunately we don't have time to get to, but it's been terrific talking to you about, and particularly clearly, your deep love of books. Thank you so much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, FM.